0: How can two different people experience the same event differently? Do we see, hear, and even feel the world in different ways? Are we filtering the social and emotional information differently? The answer is yes, and this has to do with what Dr. Todd Hall calls attachment filters. This is the Embodied Faith Podcast with Jefferson Holtzclaw, where we are exploring a neuroscience informed spiritual formation produced by Grassroots Christianity which is growing faith for everyday people. Dr. Hall is a professor of psychology at Rosemead School of Psychology connected to Biola University. uh, And he also serves as an affiliate faculty to the Harvard uh, Human Flourishing Program, Harvard University. Uh, He has recently written books on relational spirituality as well as the connected life. We have actually recorded episodes on both those books in the past. Those will be in the show notes. And they articulate a comprehensive relational spirituality paradigm that for transformation and highlights the transformative power of connections. It's all about connections. All about that's what we're talking about here on this podcast. Welcome, Todd, on the show once again.
1: Thank you, Jeff and said it's
0: great to great to be back. Really appreciate you guys uh, having we'll me on. I love. Wow. Well, I love having you on, but now since Sid has been a part of the show. Now yeah, I finally get to be part of the conversation,
2: again. too. I'm excited about that. So
0: yeah. I'm sure it'll be great. But yeah, now we're going to kick it off with uh, questions and yeah. thoughts about attachment and attachment.
2: Yeah, theory. so those questions that Jeff asked at the beginning, you know, he, I don't think you actually said, but, you know, we really wanted you to come on today so we could talk to you about attachment uh, because, you know, Jeff and I are deeply interested in attachment right now, too, and doing some work there. And I'm just wondering if you can start us off with, you know, I have people say things to me like, why do I need to look back at my early formation? Like, you know, I just need to keep moving forward. Life is life now. Now is now. Why does does looking backwards, like, I don't want to just be navel gazing for the rest of my life. Or I've also had people say, like, when I hear that we're working on attachment, they be like, oh, you mean like wearing your baby and like nursing on demand or sleeping with your kid? Is that what you're talking about? So, I'm just curious if you could just sort of give a brief overview for our listeners. What do you mean when you're talking about attachment relationships?
1: Yes, definitely. So, yeah, in terms of said your first that that first comment you mentioned about why do I have to look to the past? So, um, yeah, that comes up a lot in these conversations in in the church and with discipleship and therapy and coaching and spiritual direction. Maybe even as we've been talking about. And I think the the basic answer to that is that the past is never just the past. It's always brought into our present through a form of memory that's called implicit memory. So we have this gut level implicit form of memory that stores all of our experiences and filters our perception. And so it's always brought into the present. The present moment is is always constructed somewhat based on our past experiences, and that's what happens with attachment. So that's why we need to understand those influences and reshape and restructure them. So one of the things I tell my students teaching them, you know, in the context of learning therapy is that therapy is the process of changing the way we remember the past. Mm. So oftentimes, you know, clients will say to them and you know at some point early in the therapy, um, they'll get you know distraught and and feel hopeless and say something like, you know, I can't change what happened to me. What's what's the point of this, right? And of course, it's true. We can't change what happened, but we can change the way we remember what happened to us. And that's essentially what psychotherapy and all forms of growth really are, um, helping us to change the way we remember the past. Um, and that's because the past is always influencing how we experience the present moment.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great. Exp- so when you talk about attachment, you're ta- so that's like defending that why it's important. Um, But what are you actually talking about when you're talking about attachment relationships? Like, which relationships are those? Yeah.
1: Right, right, great question. So, right, attachment is, attachment relationships are a particular kind of uh, relationship, and you know, some scholars define them a little more narrowly, and then there's, there's you know, huge literature on this now, so people are starting to define it a little bit more broadly, but in the literature that developed around attachment theory, basically it's referring to a very particular, special kind of relationship where there's a deep connection between a caregiver, what we sometimes call an attachment figure, um, usually someone stronger and wiser, but those can also be peer relationships, you know, and then someone on the receiving end of that care, such as a child. So the prototype is in a, a parent child uh, relationship. And so when the child becomes attached, which usually happens by six months of age, that's uh, six to 12 months, that's usually in place, this bond develops that so we call an attachment bond. And there's a couple of characteristics of that that, we, that sort of tell us this is an attachment relationship. One is um, that the child seeks physical proximity. There's sort of two sides of the same coin. One is they seek physical proximity to in order to uh, promote safety, physical safety, as well as emotional security. And then the flip side of that coin is when there's separation, they experience distress separation anxiety sometimes it's mm-hmm. called right but to, to suppress the separation and we all see that in our, our children children of your friends right that's a normal thing right and that's part of what shows us this is an attachment relationship is that somebody seeks proximity when they're upset or distressed the other um aspect of that is sometimes is called a secure base in um attachment theory and so that's uh uh what I call comfort and challenge, but just the security to go out and explore uh, the world, but also, you know, explore our, our internal world. And so that's another aspect that sort of tells us this is an attachment relationship. So to simplify that, I just refer to it as a secure base that has these two components of comfort and challenge. So comfort when we're distressed and then a positive sense of challenge to explore the world, explore our internal world, our past, you know, as you mentioned, Sid, um, so those are really kind of the things that mark an attachment relationship.
0: Okay. Well, just for those, um, uh, very studious listeners who want to like track down this information, uh, I just want to throw some caveats out there because, cause I've been teaching, you know, some students, these things and, and the terminology can get all over the place. So what you described as the yeah. secure base, you were kind of using both sides of the coming to in the midst of distress and the longing for proximity. But then it's also like, the place that you go out from because you've been charged up with confidence. You've been given a little kind of encouraging nudge. Like you can go explore that. You can ride your bicycle. You could, you know, and, and that comes from that secure base, that attachment figure. And sometimes that split between it's called both secure base and then like a safe haven. Uh, so sometimes I just want to throw that there right. for those. I, Todd and my, and Sid and I, we conflate that. We just talk about secure base, but some people talk about a secure base and a safe haven as these components of an attachment relationship, just throwing it out there for those of you who have come across it anyways. All right. So then, um, the, the attachment bond is, uh, like an emotional, um, kind of bond, obviously. So when it's, it's, uh, threatened or absent for whatever reason, there's a, some distress and there's wanting to seek. The proximity. There's an emotional bond also for like joy and excitement where um, you're being stretched, you know, with all that kind of positive exuberance uh, kind of life. What are some like other uh, components of understanding an attachment relationship? Sometimes people start talking about like internal working models or some of these other fancy right, terms, right. like what, what, what is that stuff?
1: Yeah. So, right. So just to lead up to kind of understanding the internal working model Um, it's helpful to understand sort of the attachment process, how it gets activated and unfolds, which you just were alluding to, Jeff, I think. So it's always operating in the background to some extent, but the attachment system in particular gets activated when we perceive threat or loss or separation, you know, or some kind of distress. So that's when it kicks into high gear. And we typically seek proximity to our attachment figures and, and comfort. And as I mentioned earlier, Parent-child is a prototype, right? But we have we need attachment all throughout our lives. We have attachment figures all throughout our lives. They tend to become peers, you know, spouses, partners, friends, and you know, so many different relationships can actually have a an aspect of attachment. You know, so that some scholars will say, um, you know, that it's actually better to talk about relationships that have an attachment domain or aspect to it, and it's that aspect where you're seeking proximity. Um, so we need that all throughout our lives. And so when we do become distressed or th- threatened or, or there's separation, that's when it gets activated and we seek proximity. If there is comfort and what you know, a sense of felt security, Dan Siegel's term, um, then, and that happens repeatedly, right? We, we internalize that in this implicit gut level form of memory. Uh, and so then that is this felt sense of security or secure base that is, that we hold inside our heart, right? It's internalized and we're able to use that to comfort ourselves. That's how we learn to regulate our emotions and comfort ourselves. Not that we don't still need people, but we're able to do some of that emotion regulation work ourselves. If there's not comfort, then we go into these secondary attachment strategies, which are really, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we're talking, there are strategies to help us to cope, right? And so, and they're they lead to insecure attachment. There's a couple of you know forms of that, um, but basically they're ways of coping and promoting what I call pseudo security, right? So it's it's or pseudo connection. There's still a need for connection with the parent, but what children do is they work around the difficulties with attachment, you know, with their parents so they can get some kind of connection. And, um, so generally those. They you know, move in the direction of avoidance or anxiety. Those are kind of the two basic types, and so if that happens repeatedly, there's not comfort, but instead there's neglect or abuse, or the parent is very anxious, and you know there's a reversal of roles, you know, any of those kinds of things, then The child's going to internalize that and they're going to learn, you know, one of two basic strategies again of either avoiding and withdrawing when they, when their attachment system gets activated because that led to the best chance of some kind of connection safety, or they're going to become anxious and hyperactivate their attachment system because that seemed to do the best job of getting some kind of response. Yeah. Uh, and so that's all going to be internalized in this gut level form of memory and and that's what attachment theory calls internal working models that you mentioned. Yeah.
2: And I just want to highlight something that you said where you said the child works around what they're receiving from the parent. And so just that sense that children are so much more resourceful than we ever give them credit for. And all of us as children were very resourceful. And so I I mean, as I coach people, I hear people often say, I hate that I do that, or why am I so incapable of forming deep relationships, or why do I have all this social anxiety, all those kinds of things that sort of spin up? Um, And so can you say a little bit about how you personally help people um, sort of come into a different way of seeing or understanding those things that they say they hate about themselves?
1: Yes. Right. Yeah. That's such an important point, Sid. It's, so I think in, you know, whether it's coaching or therapy, we talked about, we were talking earlier about the differences yeah. there and there are differences, but There's there's definitely overlap. We were
0: talking before any, any, we recorded to... though. So if people aren't trying to rewind and being like, where did they talk <laughs> about that? We were we so were thinking <laughs> about, oh, we should do a whole nother episode on the difference between, the difference, similarity, overlaps, and how they work together of coaching and therapy. So I just didn't want listeners to be like, where's that right. episode? <laughs> It's maybe it's coming, but it hasn't right, been right. recorded yet. Okay, go on.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So there is, there is overlap there, but I think in any kind of growth process, we want to help people have a, a new experience and a new understanding. So part of the new understanding is understanding that these were necessary strategies to cope with, you know, whatever it was. So maybe it was a loss, maybe it was a, you know, Parent that was very neglectful, or both parents. Maybe it was a parent that was very anxious, or maybe there were you know there was abuse. Whatever, whatever it was, that you had to cope to again maintain some kind of connection that was necessary. And so, because that's very understandable. So helping people to understand that can be very healing. Yeah, you know, could sort of loosen the the grip on these negative feelings toward the self. Right, that there's something wrong with me because I you know, related in these ways and now relate in these ways also continue to, to carry that forward. And that's that's another part of the new understanding is that the, you know, back to the internal working models, right? These are models or representations in our mind that operate subconsciously or unconsciously. Okay. And so we continue to play those out until they get reshaped and and healing takes place. So it's, again, it's very natural and understandable. It's just part of what it means to be human. That's, you know, one thing I, Say often to you know my students and sometimes to clients as well. So it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's that you're you're human <laughs> and you're and you're coping. So that's a new understanding. And then new new experiences. There needs to be new relational experiences that are more secure yeah. and create the secure base. And that's more directly what rewires these internal working models. Yeah,
2: yeah. I just want to repeat again. You know, for all those listening, it's not like there's something wrong with you. There's actually something very right with you because you adapted to your circumstances the way that you needed to in order to be able to have the best connections with people that you could. But then there also comes this moment of responsibility, right? So it's like, well, okay, now that I can know where this comes from, I can understand where its roots are. I can understand that this was actually an intelligent choice that I made when I was younger. Uh, but that also means that I don't just get to keep doing things the way I've always done. And I don't have to do any work to try to change my, as you're saying, a filter. Um, but instead, like you're saying, you need new stories, new experiences in order to be able to shift the filter. Uh, because once we've seen and felt that relief of, oh, okay, this is, I actually did intelligent things. Now, again, the choice is how do I be resourceful now and come up with new ways of being? So, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Which, right. which right. is different
2: Deep. than, Deep. and I maybe I'm getting into dangerous water here. So you can go ahead and, and smack me back here. But like they, you know, with, with a lot of the sort of um, popular understandings of trauma in our culture, I think there is sort of a sense of like, well, this is just, I have good reason to behave this way. So you can't ask me to change. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think it's a great point said that it's it's understandable that we coped when you know in childhood and in certain ways. Uh, but it's also these insecure strategies are also counterproductive mm-hmm. to current relationships, and and definitely um, oftentimes are not loving they're working at you know cross purposes with love so from a christian standpoint when we're in that context we want to help people grow in love of god and others right and so these attachment strategies have
0: to be reworked in order to be able to to love yeah so uh, you no know, god and others more, more freely so just to kind of review and then to jump into the strategies so we have like an attachment relationship between a caregiver and a child uh, when the caregiver is responding sensitively and timely and appropriately to our distress and needs, uh, long term, we create like a secure attachment relationship. But if you have a less than timely, attuned, attentive caregivers, you talked about there being a workaround, like students or students, sorry, we're all teachers. So I say students, but kids, um, who are students of their parents will figure out a workaround to, to find, to find, you know, to get what they need. Um, and so, Mm -hmm. and these do fall into two dominant and then one third, like typical kind of patterns. Like there's a pretty like and there's, you know, 50 Mm -hmm. plus years of, of regular research that shows like these patterns are pretty regular. Uh, so could you kind of go through, Mm -hmm. um, what some of these workarounds or the attachment filters are the main one of like avoidance and then anxious, like what kind of parental, or relational environments give rise to them? And then how does that right. make it so that we seem to experience the world differently? Okay, that was a right. huge question, but we'll see. where <laughs> do these come from? Let's do the right, workarounds right. first. Uh, then okay. okay,
1: yeah, we'll yeah. go through the different strategies yep. or styles, and, and as you said, terminology, can. there's a lot of different terms used. We can talk through that. before. I, before I say that, one thought I had that I want to mention is that you know, these are, in the research, they're depicted as categories, but they're really, you know, in reality yeah. dimensions, right? We um, we don't we don't just sort of exist in one box, whether that's secure or insecure. Um, and so I, I think it's important that for people to know, even if you're generally have a more secure, you know, attachment, we all have insecure tendencies, especially when we become distressed or, you know, as I was saying earlier, experience threat or loss or something like that. And this is still relevant, uh, in that sense, definitely in therapy and in coaching, because when we become distressed, we're going to generally move in one direction or the other toward avoidance or toward anxiety. Um, and that's because we're human, we're fallen <laughs> creatures, uh, we're still on this path of growth, right? So this side of heaven, that that's always going to be the case. So yeah, it's, it can be, I think it's relevant for all sort of, um, paths of growth and in different types of methodologies and modalities helping people grow whether that's discipleship coaching therapy whatever mm-hmm. so back to the yeah the the strategies so this is what i call the attachment filter matrix and it's a little visual i created just to sort of depict these four types and of course you know i didn't create these these are as you mentioned jeff um attachment pattern strategies that that were developed um yeah back John Bowlby was writing the 1940s and then Mary Ainsworth started working with him and and formulating some of these and did some of the early research. So, you know, back to the 1950s. So they've been around a while and they're just interestingly now sort of rising to, you know, the popular level literature, um, which is, which is really interesting and helpful, I think. Um, so there's different research traditions, so we don't need to get into the Deep the uh, you know sort of gory details of that, but there's basically an interview tradition around what's called the adult attachment interview that was developed by Mary Main, who was a student of Mary Ainsworth, and then there's a whole self-report tradition of research where you know the measures used are self-report, where people answer questions about their attachment that started off with Phil Shaver looking at romantic adult attachment, so he's the one who said, hey, I think this theory can apply to adult romantic relationships, and started off with just paragraphs where people just sort of check off which one applied and then that was expanded into you know more formal measures having said that there's been research that's tried to just sort of pull all this together and sort of consolidate you know what are the different types and when you look at all the different methodologies um you you can still sort of find two underlying dimensions so this is a research approach that or methodology that tries to just reduce things down so we can explain them so it does simplify things but it helps us to kind of understand so there's two underlying dimensions and so i refer well this is you know in the in the literature one way to refer to them as one dimension is relational engagement so this is what i have is the vertical dimension in this um so it's a sort of a two by two graph if you can picture that and it's by the way it's in this um free resource that i think you're going
0: to um, yes, get the information link and get that show notes to this uh, to get this PDF with this visual and everything yes
1: right, so the vertical dimension is relational engagement on one end, relational avoidance on the other, right, so that's a continuum and then the horizontal dimension is emotional distress on one end to emotional composure on the other and so again, what we're talking about here is when a, the attachment system gets activated particularly somebody's distressed or, you know, there's loss or threat this is going to kick into high gear. And so when you take those two dimensions, you get these four quadrants or four different attachment styles or strategies. The top right one is what we call secure. So that's a combination of emotional composure and relational engagement. Meaning when people have this, you know, generally internalized, again, there's still maybe insecure tendencies, but if they've had enough experiences of security with parents and authority figures, when they get distressed, they're they're going to be able to maintain some level of emotional composure, and they're going to move toward people, relational engagement, for support and help. Not to the extent generally that they're going to overwhelm people, but they just they know when they need help and they're able to reach out and be vulnerable. And so on, on the chart that people can download, I've got the characteristics listed. And for secure, they, are, they include be a regulated vulnerability. So there's an ability to be vulnerable, but it's regulated. Uh, being emotionally close. So they are able to be emotionally close and they value it. That's another important thing. People, Some people with other types of attachment that we'll talk about consciously at least don't value attachment, close attachment relationships. Um, so secure people also are, uh, as I mentioned, emotionally regulated. They have a balanced reliance on self and others. So they're still able to manage their emotions to some extent and do some of that work themselves. But they can also reach out to others when they need help and we all do that in, you know, healthy relationships with partners and spouses, right? When we're upset or distressed, right? You you come home from a difficult day of work, either one of you, right? And, you know, Sid, you, you talk to Jeff and you you sort of download what happened and process it. Or Jeff, Jeff, you do the same with Sid, right? And you sort of help each other kind of work, work through that without overwhelming each other, hopefully. So that's the balance, right? And then there's a genuine sense of confidence um, and a... Um, reflective stance toward one's own experience. Mm-hmm. So that means that the person is able to process, think about their feelings and their experiences, and sort of step outside them and and have take perspectives of other people and different perspectives, and that helps them kind of process their emotions, and they don't feel, you know, sort of trapped in their um, in their emotions, which can happen. So that's secure. Um, we'll pick up the pace here a little bit. If we move to the, the top left in this quadrant, it's that's anxious attachment. And so that's when people get their attachment system gets activated. They do move toward people. So relational engagement on the top quadrant, but there's emotional distress on that left side, right? So there's a lot of anxiety um, and dysregulated vulnerability. They can sometimes become emotionally clingy or even demanding. People can experience them as demanding. Um, and so this is you know, when the, high, the attachment system gets hyperactivated, mm-hmm. or, you know, really kicks into high gear, they're emotionally dysregulated. There's a, um, over-reliance on others to manage their emotions. And so that's part of what creates a negative cycle sometimes, right? They reach out, they, they they demand that other people, um, ma- manage their emotions and then other people tend to withdraw. Mm-hmm. And so it creates this negative cycle, which is, that's another important point about These insecure attachment, um, strategies is that they create these negative cycles. So I call them cyclical protection patterns because they're designed to protect us, but they're, they're cyclical and they, because they sort of are self-defeating and repeat themselves. With the anxious folks, also there's a lack of confidence. Oftentimes the anxiety, um, and there's oftentimes a fear of abandonment. And so that sometimes blocks their ability to sort of tap into their own confidence, so I've had you know a n- number of clients with this kind of attachment tendency um, who oftentimes were you know very bright, very competent people, but still very anxious because they they have difficulty tapping into that, and so they would get really anxious and upset if something happened at work, for example, with the boss and and to the point sometimes of fearing they're going to get fired when in reality they're they're very competent, they're not even close to that right. So um and then in terms of stance toward experience they have an embedded stance toward their experience so meaning they sometimes feel trapped by their experience like they can't get outside of it they can't sort of take perspective and think about it so that's the the anxious and so those are the two kind of basic directions if you will there's this third insecure before we go there um, oh, before sorry. we
2: go there i just want to mention <laughs> like when i talk with people about this i think a word that always like really stands out and people people feel like describes their experience is the word hypervigilant um, so yes. that sense of like, if you, if you have this sort of anxious, insecure attachment, there's this sense of always being on guard, always watching every environment. And that feels like a way of that, that anxiety sort of shows up in that sort of hypervigilance, vigilance uh, toward the world. Like you can't ever relax or let down your guard.
1: Right, right, right. Yes. That's such a great point. Sid. definitely that's very descriptive that, yeah, because there's been abandonment in the right. past, um, and people not meeting their, um, their needs, uh, consistently. So they grew up having to be hypervigilant. And that's where the term in, in the adult attachment interview, this is called preoccupied mm. attachment. And it relates to that because they're preoccupied with their attachment figures because they never know if they're going to be responsive. So they're always having to watch them right. and be hypervigilant. Right. And then that carries forward. So that's a great descriptor. So the other main direction is avoidant attachment in the adult attachment literature. That's called dismissing attachment because they dismiss the importance of attachment. And uh, so that is um, there's emotional composure, although that's kind of on the surface. If you dig beneath that, mm-hmm. there's there's still you know there's a lot of um, emotional pain, and um, uh, that composure will will disappear sometimes. But on the surface, there's composure, and then and then relational avoidance is what that quadrant is. So when they become activated distressed they tend to move away from people but on the surface they're they're staying composed so they tend to struggle to be vulnerable they're not very vulnerable they're emotionally guarded disengaged they rely too much on themselves especially when they're up. you know something distresses them that's when they and they need people that's when they withdraw um, and and become more self-reliant and so there's this kind of pseudo confidence and a disconnected stance toward their experience so that's avoiding or dismissing attachment the other third type is fearful attachment that came about in the self report literature so that's this bottom left quadrant that's a combination of avoidance and distress so it's kind of an interesting one because it has some features of preoccupied of anxious and some of avoidant mm-hmm. um and it doesn't really exist in the in the interview literature there's a there's a another type of attachment called unresolved for loss or abuse <clears throat> or disorganized mm-hmm. for the children <clears throat> So, there's some similarities, but it doesn't exactly overlap with fearful. Fearful attachment seems to be uh, situations where people, they've had some sense of connection, but it's associated with emotional pain. Mm. And so, there's this desire for connection and distress when, when they don't get it, but behaviorally, there's this avoidance or, or maybe sort of a back and forth, right? I might start to reach out because I want that connection. But I'm a, it's associated it with, with you know emotional pain, maybe abuse, and so I back up and withdraw. And so there's a lot of emotional dysregulation, um, and this, again, desire for connection, but but fear of that very same connection. And sometimes there's sabotaging of connection because of that dynamic. So that's the fearful attachment. So those are the basic kind of
0: styles or strategies styles strategies or Uh, filters so then why do you call them like filters like why because like when you think i think of a coffee filter you know i want the hot water to go through the filter uh i want the hot water to kind of take some of the coffee flavor with it but i don't want the grounds in my coffee so that's like filtering some things get through but not everything like all the coffee beans and not all the water got through right so that's what I right. think of as filter. So why did you use the word filter? Is there, do these different quadrants process or experience? This is a le- very leading question, obviously, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So I call them filters because it describes the, f- the function they serve, which is again, this, this gut level implicit form of memory is filtering our perception of reality and especially, you know, relational experiences. So As you put it, Jeff, that's a great analogy, right? Some things get through the filter and some things don't. So the things that don't get through are the things, the the experiences that are not as consistent with our past experience, right? So if somebody is anxious, attachment, that's kind of their dominant, you know, Mm -hmm. filter tendency. And they start seeing Sid for coaching or therapist, and you're providing a lot of security. Some of that doesn't get through very easily because it doesn't map match up with their past experience. And so what does get through more easily are things that are consistent with the past experience and it actually filters their perception. So they tend to perceive people as more similar to their past Mm -hmm. attachment Mm features and experiences. So if they've experienced abandonment, right? It's that that fear is just operating, hypervigilance, as you put it, Sid, all the time. You know, you may be saying things that sound good, but I know you're gonna abandon me. Because that happened in the past. So I, so I feel that it's just part of my present experience. It just filters the way I see the world, the way I experience the world. So that's part of why I refer mm-hmm. to it. So way. in
0: that sense, um, because of your past experiences, um, you're filtering out maybe the uniqueness or the difference of this, per- we'll just say your spouse, right? So Sid, my wife, you know, like I could see her as if she were my mom. And that's filtering out the ways in which Sid's not acting at all like my mom. It's only filtering in like the one or two ways in which she's triggering my, oh, I hate it when my mom does, she's treating me like my mom. She's, I'm not a child. I'll show her I'm right. not a child, right? And it's just like this, uh, you know, and actually the reverse happened a little bit where she would treat me like her dad, but I'll let her share that story if she wants to. But so you're filtering out like the unique situation right. of the present- uh through this past and now all of a sudden you're like oh i knew it it's just like the past now i know how to respond when it's like actually you're responding very poorly in the present because the present's not like the past right right
1: yeah
2: exactly yeah right. and that just one of those things that that we've talked about you know an example for each of those is you know we've talked about how the if you're in sort of an anxious um attachment strategy it's easy to uh, sort of hallucinate or make up signs of rejection even if they're not there Um, So that's even Mm -hmm. adding something that's not even getting filtered in or out. You're just sort of imagining something that's there when it's really not. And then on the other side of the, you know, the avoidant is like, well, even if people are wanting to connect with you, you're sort of blind to it or you're missing it because it's not getting through right? because you don't expect it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You just don't, you don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. There's fascinating research demonstrating some of this said that, you know, one, so one example is um, studies where they. So, men who have been diagnosed with antisocial tendencies, and they show them pictures of faces that most people would see as neutral, and antisocial men see those faces as perceive them as aggressive. Wow. <clears throat> so they just it literally changes your perception. So there's a uh, Gerald Edelman wrote this book called the the Remembered Present, which captures this idea beautifully. Right, is that the present moment is always partially remembered in um, our perception is yeah it's filtered by all of our past experiences and so sometimes you yeah you don't see bids for connection that people are, are making or or you experience the you know the anxiety and that kind of thing so so it is filtering I mean I think it's also important to point out it's not doing that 100% right so new experiences can we get can. in we can right. change,
0: and it has to do it's with just uh, going how to probably how strong the attachment relationship is and how distressed you are in the moment if you're not distressed then those filters aren't going to be as strong and that new experience will get through or you won't read into, right. the, you know, the whole reading between the lines or over-reading someone's, you know, facial expression as rejection or disgust when really they just burnt. Right. Uh, uh, and so when you're at low stress and, you know, and it's a new stranger and you don't really know them and you don't care what they think about you that much, then you're not, like, these filters aren't as active. But when it's like your spouse, when it's your parents, right. or maybe some siblings depending or a boss, you know, and you're stressed out because the project's way behind and your kids are all sick. And then it's just like, these things are right at the, at the top and it's very much controlling your perceptions. Exactly. Right.
2: So you made a point just there, you know, you said things do get through. It's not like nothing can get through the filter. So Mm -hmm. how would you cast some hopeful good news to people? You know, like the first time people hear this kind of thing, it's like, oh, I'm relieved Mm -hmm. that I understand why, but oh my goodness, what do I do about it? So what would be some mm-hmm. hopeful good news for?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think the, the, the headline there, Sid, is that... Time to preach the gospel. Changes Come on, Dr. Todd, <laughs> preach the good news. Yeah. Change is very possible Amen. all throughout life. You know, I mean, just from a neuroscience perspective, I know you guys are, you know, really kind of um, integrating that right yeah. into what you do. I mean, that's something we've learned about the brain in the last 50 plus years or so, right? Is this idea of plasticity, that the brain can change and grow. Um, the soul, <laughs> we can change and grow all throughout life. And so there's always that possibility. And um, yes, we do need other experiences. So we we are dependent on other people, but there are things we can do to actively um, be involved in this you know, growth process. And so part of that is just embracing that I need to grow, yeah. that, there are, that I do have a responsibility in that process, mm-hmm. and then figuring out, you know, what are some of those steps I can take. Um, and and in a general sense, I would say that's putting yourself in the conditions and environments that will promote growth. Mm. So some of that's community. Spiritual communities can be some other communities, but, you know, within a Christian context, church, spiritual community is very important, right? And then also that could look like, you know, certain friendships, reaching out, spiritual direction, coaching, therapy, you know, all of the above can be very helpful um, in different ways, maybe at different times. So, there, yeah, there's always, we always have a responsibility to take action in the growth process and putting ourselves in these conditions and reaching out. And then part of why this can be so helpful understanding attachment is understanding these cycles we talked about, right? So, if, if you understand that you tend to move toward avoidance and not see the signs of people reaching out and, and you know, withdraw and become self-reliant, you know, and that's your core, you know, sort of cyclical protection pattern. Then, you know, there are certain steps you can take and need to take to move in the other direction and, and rewire that, you know, so to speak. So that might look like reaching out and being vulnerable in a way that you don't tend to do, right? With With an- anxious attachment, you know, it might look like trying to, you know, gets develop some resources to manage your emotions a little bit more before you, you know, reach out to someone. Or, you know, developing them it might be therapy or coaching or some, you know, some a friend, some resources, some relationships that can help you manage that a little bit um, so you're not doing that all over the place with with everybody, um, helping you to cope. And also just, you know, spiritual disciplines. There are some sp- particular disciplines that can help with Anxiety and avoidance, right? So just being tuned into, like, what do you need yeah. um, to move forward? Well, what
0: really, uh, briefly, just to finish, then, what would be some of those spiritual disciplines? You know, since we are a podcast focused on neuro, a neuroscience informed spiritual formation, what would you know, just off the top of your head, or mm-hmm. a couple of resources you could point us toward?
1: Yeah, I think I mean, just generally, uh, you know, Christian forms of meditation can be very helpful just to calm and and soothe. Um, uh, you know, if there's anxious tendencies, and then, you know, if there's more dismissing or, or avoidant, I think um, meditating on scripture, for example, right? So, to let that really sink in, or, you know, what I talk about in, in my books is, you know, feeling an idea, right? So, people with avoidant attachment tend to know a lot up here and sort of operate in their head, right? We all need this, but in particular, if if you have those tendencies, you need to feel the idea that God loves hmm. you. And so, meditating on scripture can help you to do that. That's great. Yeah.
0: Well,
2: can I just close with one really quick quote? This is, this yeah. is from not you. Oh, sorry, it's not from you. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: but it's from Roberta Bondi in her book, To Love As God Loves. And she just says, real freedom comes from being able to see what the actual choices are in any given situation, and then to be able to choose and act on the choices. And so… And she's sort of coming off the work of the desert fathers and mothers and their work with passions and all that. But just that sense of like we can learn to see um, and have our perception mm-hmm. be a little more accurate, right? So um, mm-hmm. that we can grow in our ability to see what the actual choices are rather than just the ones we've filtered through. And that in that mm-hmm. comes great freedom. So I just wanted to put that out there too Definitely. as a as a hopeful yeah. message. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: That's a great <clears throat> great quote. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think all gr- growth and healing involves more freedom in the sense of um, being able to love. Yeah. Mm. Yep. You know, not, not just being able to make different choices, that's part of it, but really more being able to Yeah,
2: love. that's her very next that's her very next sentence. Freedom means freedom to love.
0: <laughs> I love it. There you go. <laughs> We're all drinking out of the same well here. So <laughs> yes. uh Thank you for spending a little bit more uh, time with us. Again, uh, for those listeners, maybe this is their first episode in the show notes, we will link to past episodes uh, with Todd Hall. Uh, For those who are looking for books, because we're all looking for more books, uh, his Relational Spirituality is really great. If you're looking for more of a uh, like a master's level or somewhat more academic kind of presentation of all these things, if you're like, no, I don't want that. Uh, His The Connected Life um, is a much more popular, super accessible version. Uh, please check out both those books and where can uh, people find you online Um, and what are are any other projects or things that you want to share with us real quick?
1: Yeah. So the, yeah, the, the connected life uh, book, there's a, there's a website with um, where they can go check that out. So it's connectedlifebooks.com. And so they can, you know, there's some info about actually both books, connected life and relational spirituality and a way to contact me there. And then for that free resource, I think you're gonna put out it's, it's go.relationalspirituality.co uh, and so that's just uh, you know a little bit of information where they can enter information and then right. get this free uh, PDF resource with the attachment filter matrix and some tips for uh, for coaching from this perspective um, and that yeah in terms of work I'm doing now, um, working on a next book on transformation and deep growth and then also a coaching program kind of bringing this relational spirituality framework into coaching. So I've already started that run a cohort through probably run
0: the next cohort um, in January. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking time and uh, and all of you listeners should be praying for him. He's getting a sabbatical next year. So pray for uh, whatever it is that he needs on the sabbatical. So, well, we'll talk again, hopefully sometime uh, in the not too distant future.